All right. Hello, everyone. Is the volume on here? Okay. Can can people hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yes. Good. Yeah, sorry, it seems weirdly quiet this good today. But um, anyway, okay. Very good. Um, so what we're going to do today is kind of a brief introduction to a little bit on romanticism and the counter-enlightenment. We're not going to go, uh, it, the presentation on it isn't particularly long, and then we'll talk about hopefully really the beginning of the, the Prince of Hamburg. Um, I do want to start with any questions about the assignment to do later. Um, do, do later today or tonight. Uh, all right. I just wanted us to like email it to you, right? Yes. Attach like a PDF and send it to you. That's good. Uh, yeah, that could be fine. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. Um, great. And and I don't know. Everybody's gotten the, their last assignment back, right? About they should have gotten it back about a month ago at this point. Um. I had heard from somebody who had not gotten it back, even though I had sent it. So, uh, if if you hadn't gotten back, just just let me know. It really, I really sent them back a month ago. Uh, maybe I've I, I shared it with you guys. Uh, so take a look there. But it should alert you. The computer should alert you when you when a document has been shared with you. So anyway, um, hopefully those are going well for everyone. And uh, I'll, of course, stay on this this chat after we're done to make sure that, you know, if anybody has any other questions. Um, but let's start um, with kind of opening comments. Uh, so what are people, what are kind of first responses to the Prince of Homburg? Like or dislike? Um, I didn't like dislike it, but mm. I thought it was pretty interesting. It was kind of different from everything else that we've like mm -hmm. watched and read before in this class. Okay, so why is that the case? Why was it different from everything we've watched or read before? Um, I don't know. I guess it just a lot of the stuff we've read is kind of like centered around like love and all that kind of stuff, and like I don't know, there haven't hasn't been much with like princes and like war and stuff like that mm -hmm. and that's pretty much what this was like centered around so okay all right yeah so the, the idea of princes and war i mean we've had a little bit of that with lear right lear is a story of royals and war um uh oedipus rex is also you know the he Oedipus Rex literally means Oedipus the King. So there, there is, there have been kind of upper class and lower class. Um, I think the, the idea of the this sort of romantic notion of the prince, I think is probably what's coming up here, and that's that's really different. Um, and also, you know, romantic love, yes and no. I mean, do you think? How do you think that kind of the romantic love stuff is different from, let's say, as you like it? Um, it's not really like as gushy, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. 
Yeah, as you like it is also like romantic love, and then somebody comes along and tells you actually how to be like a boyfriend or girlfriend. It seems to be what as you like it is is this guy's writing poems on trees, and somebody comes along and tells him that this is actually how you act like an adult. Um, There isn't that particular force here. Things in this play are a little, little more dreamy. and I, you know, I think the, the sort of, the way we think of princes and romance uh, as filtered through something like Disney, if you see old, older Disney movies, um, or even younger movies like Beauty and the Beast, things like that, that notion of the prince or something, um, it, it seems to come from this era. And I think this play is, is a good stand-in for those types of plays where you'd have sort of the the romantic nationalist leader who is um you know also considered um a, is is kind of romantically interested in things not just uh, a female character but also um sort of the world there's sort of a bit of like this poet prince type aspect to this character um but even the kind of the look of it, right? The, the sort of uh, the 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 princely look with a cape and with um, you know kind of the the vest with the epaulets and all the the badges, uh, um, all, all the the pins and whatnot. That also seems to come from this era, and it is is a big part of this uh, romantic nationalism that we are seeing. Any other uh, any other responses to this play? Yeah, I was actually going to say, I felt like this was kind of, um, you know, old world Disney before <laughs> Disney was a thing because um, the prince was like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I'm my own person. I, you know, it's, you know, my life, it kind of felt like, you know, like, oh, my life, this is, I'm me, I'm not, you know, controlled by others or, you know, it kind of did feel like old school Disney, mm-hmm. sort of like, um, of course, not nearly as gushy, but. Mm-hmm. It felt like this is where Disney may have gotten their inspiration and then did, you know, 10 times more romance. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I actually really liked this play. Okay, good. I'm glad. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because that kind of, um, I think that idea of the romantic hero is really in 19th and even later than this, late 19th century uh, creation. If you think of the, the the Disney castle, right, that I think if you go into Disney World or, or, or whatever it is, um, Disney World or Disneyland, I don't, I can never remember the difference. Um, but the, the castle at the beginning of the park, but also the castle you see in the opening credits of Disney movies, uh, that castle is based on... Um, on a castle by uh, by a, a kind of romantic prince whose name I suddenly just forgot, um, but it's it's a Bavarian castle that was started in the really in the late nineteenth century and was never completed. It's still you could go visit it, um, but it's the castle of uh, Swanstone, I believe it's called. Um, let me look it up. Uh, 
uh, yeah, Neuschwanstein Castle um, is a it, it's a this nineteenth century castle, late nineteenth century castle um, that Ludwig the Second had built. Okay, um, in honor of uh, in honor of Wagner, the the romantic the romantic composer, and. And the castle was not ever a, a castle used for the the reason we normally use castles for, but it was this kind of um, it was this sort of romantic image that he wanted to create for the you know the great romantic composer Richard Wagner, and it it seems like the idea of the romantic royalty, right. Um, that Disney used and reused and, and then com- later would comment on, that kind of comes from this era. Um, and th- part of the reason for that is it's very much attached to nationalism. It's very much attached to national identity. And national identity is less, uh, very much less a thing um, before the 19th century. And that that's in part because we see a unification of Germany, we see a unification of Italy, and we see a unification really of America in the 19th century. I mean, America's a country, but after the Civil War, um, it's no longer the American states, but it's the United States of America. You know, you start seeing R becomes is when describing the country. Um, and Germany, even though at the time of this play, uh, is not a unified place, right? Which we've we've discussed before. Unif- Germany doesn't become unified until the 1870s. And this play is um, is much earlier than that, the 18 teens. So, um, so we're not. Uh, excuse me, 1820s. So it's not necessarily a, a a unified country, but you're beginning to see people think of themselves as German. And uh, a lot of the the major thinkers of that day, and we'll go into this a a little more today too, but a lot of major thinkers of the late 18th and early 19th century began to think in terms of a national identity. Not a national identity prescribed by a ruler. So you have England and France battling for, you know, the Hundred Years' War, who gets to control France. Um, that would be like kind of a top-down nationalism, right? It's is Does Edward II have a legitimate claim over France? So we're going to fight for a hundred years and uh, see which king wins and then no one at the very bottom of the the social ladder really cares because you're still a dirt poor farmer in a feudal territory and it really doesn't matter who your lord pays taxes to right so you you just kind of continue on with your life nationalism really doesn't affect you but what we start to see with uh, with the late 18th and early 19th century is that philosophers and thinkers were beginning to analyze the the people of a particular country as uh, sort of generating a nationalist attitude. That that is, it's coming from the bottom up. It's coming from the people. And one of the main identifying features that shapes this is language. Language begins to set the boundaries of a country. 
this makes a lot of sense for a Germany, which is 500 or so different states, but who roughly speak the same language. I mean, Germany, German, the German language varies a lot within uh, these different states. It varies a lot today from one one part of Germany to the other. Um, but it's certainly not French, right? It's certainly not Italian. It's certainly not English. Um, and so what you begin to see is the, the boundaries being kind of defined from the bottom up. And this creates a, a nationalist attitude. The irony, of course, is when we see this depicted in plays, like we're seeing it now, like we're seeing it in, in The Prince of Homburg, um, who are the people who kind of embody this spirit? Well, it's it's still kind of the upper classes. It's still the people with capacity to do something, to be heroes, to be romanticized. We're not yet in... Um, we're not yet in what's called low mimesis, right? Mimesis just means imitation. So low mimesis would be uh, plays that are imitating the lower classes. Uh, we're not really getting that. We get that a little bit with Voidsec, but Voidsec is a super weird play and, and an outlier, right? Um, but what we're seeing here is a, a nationalist fervor that uses the stories of heroes in order to um, in order to, to generate uh, a national mythos, right? A national story, the story of us. Um, and that's, yeah, that seems to be what's going on, I think, or something to consider anyway when looking at the Prince of Homburg. Um, so one, let's talk a little bit about that in regard to the play. So does anybody know when the play is set? It's not, it's not set when it was written. All right, so the, the play was um, written 1809. Mid-1600s? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's like 1675. So good, yeah. Exactly. Um, and it is, what's kind of going on here? They have a problem with someone. Was it, war, was it the war between Brandenburg and another country? Mm -hmm. exactly. You almost said it. Sweden. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's the elector of Brandenburg, uh, Frederick Wilhelm, who's, you know, uh, Frederick II, who we, we remember from two weeks ago was considered this kind of great, great military hero, right? And this is the story of his court um, going to war with Sweden and defeating Sweden. So here are here's a German writer looking into um, a past in Germany in which you had uh, you had a hero, a lionized figure, uh, the, the elector Frederick Wilhelm, um, winning a military campaign. Um, so. You know, now we know from from two weeks ago, if you remember, you know, Frederick Wilhelm was the elector of Brandenburg, and he's trying to connect that to Prussia. And really, most of Germany isn't 
isn't in Prussia or Brandenburg. Most of it's the Holy Roman Empire, which itself isn't one thing, but a whole bunch of different things. And But, you know, whatever, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, Kleist, our author, isn't particularly interested in that. Um, he's interested in the people, his people, of whom he is a, a member, um, looking to history, looking to find their history and finding their history. And I think this is going to be a big part of how this play deals with uh, romanticism and um, the alternative or an alternative to kind of enlightenment thought. Right, and so I'm going to, let's do a brief, um, well, that's a loud sound. Okay, hopefully that sound will stop soon. But uh, let's do a brief kind of slideshow thing like, like usual on Mondays. Um, since everybody has an assignment, I'm going to assume that possibly not everyone got to, got to watch this. So I'm going to kind of do my best with that, um, with that in mind. Um, and so, oh, let me share this with you guys. And so we'll try and cover some main details in this. Sorry, I'm binding time. Okay, so hopefully, can, can people see what I'm sharing? Yes. Okay, good. Yep. Okay. Um, so what we start to see in the, what we talked about before the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment, this kind of, um, rise of uh, logic and rationality and um, an understanding, a turn away from linking everything to a religious authority. And uh, you start to see radical individualism come into being. So this idea that the, the individual or the single person should have a kind of universal and true nat natural right um, you know, we're going to see kind of the, the buttressing of science as a means of understanding the world and not revelation. And this is very robust in both England and in the German-speaking states. And where you have a collection of, of philosophers. Um, what ends up happening later in, uh, in the counter-enlightenment, later in the Enlightenment, is that, of, that Frederick II or Frederick the Great of Prussia... Um, became, you know, started to form a larger and larger state, a more bureaucratized state. Here's a picture of him. So, you know, this kind of Prussian area where this display is being performed. It's where Frederick II is ruling, and he is, um, his control is growing larger. And people begin to think that it's coming from French Enlightenment thinkers, you know, the kind of people we talked about. Uh, so, um, uh, t -t -t people like uh, Voltaire and, and whatnot, uh, those thinkers, or the, the French, you know, kind of economic thinkers like Richard Cantaloon, um, that they're having an undue effect on Frederick, and it's making him more authoritarian. Um, and German people were, were kind of irritated by this. So that's going on. Um, and also what we see in France is not just the the effect of thinkers. We also see the the French Revolution, which is really 
which really links itself to the Enlightenment. You know, often we think of um, the Enlightenment, and we've talked about this before, as being uh, politically manifested in America, in the formation of America. And yeah, that, that's true, but the French Enlightenment, the uh, French Revolution is also a manifestation of the Enlightenment, um, in which you could see the, the, the leaders of the French Enlightenment pull down religious statues and put up statues to reason and start to worship reason. And the response to the French Enlightenment, um, the response to the, the killing of the royal family, a royal family that had been in power since at least the 1580s, and you could you could link them back to the early 13th century. This this terrified everyone, and they began to see it as the the sort of the furthest length to which Enlightenment thought can take us um, before it gets horrifying, before you start to have bloodbath, and even the people who initially are championing the French Enlightenment, people like Thomas Jefferson eventually come to regret, or, or even William Wordsworth in England, um, come to regret their their support for it because um, uh, because eventually the, the guillotine starts to kill everyone. They just start to execute more and more people, and it becomes clear that this is, uh, this is not probably what Enlightenment thinkers prefer. Um, and what ends up happening afterwards is... Napoleon, who was a lower-level army officer from Sardinia, takes control of um, the army. He later takes control of France. He becomes emperor of France. He declares himself emperor. He actually, um, when he's being crowned, he takes the crown and puts it on his own head. So he crowns himself. Um, And he becomes a controversial figure in the sense that a lot of people saw him as... Um, the upward moving striving individual, the, the kind of the embodiment of of the the conquering able romantic individual. Beethoven's third symphony, for example, the Eroica, was initially dedicated to Napoleon. Napoleon began to um, uh, invade other countries and so uh, Beethoven scratched that dedication out. but, that was the type of inspiration somebody like Napoleon gave to artists, to artists who were on the cusp of the, this Enlightenment, counter-Enlightenment divide, right? And so, um, and so they saw him as this romantic figure, and he's also this, you know, kind of national hero. He's kind of uh, gaining glory for France. You could see that the um, the way he's he's dressed and whatnot uh, that that's sort of um, used in our production of The Prince of Hamburg. Um, and so, yeah, he, he's an important individual and a controversial one because is he a great counter-enlightenment figure? Is he a great kind of romantic hero? Or is he a monster? Right? Um, and it, eventually people begin to see him more as a monster, uh, you know, but even... Later on in the 19th century, you have people like Friedrich Nietzsche, who is who the, he is writing and describing Napoleon as the combination of Superman and monster. <laughs> um, so this um, this this kind of blurry blurry eyed view of Napoleon continues throughout the century. 
Um, another now getting into the artistic movement, Sturmendrang or Storm and Stress, um, or Sturmendrang. I put a O instead of a U, um, but anyway. So very late in the uh, in the seventeen seventies, a German writer, Frederick M. Klinger, writes a play called Sturmendrang uh, about a group of people who traveled to America to participate in the American Revolution, known in the play as American. Um, actually, the main character kidnaps a few people and forces them to come with him to America. Um, but there's a lot of extreme emotion and, and kind of rending of clothes and all that stuff. And um, Sturmendrag becomes a, an artistic movement, um, which deals with uh, a kind of... Um, an extraordinary or overbearing amount of emotion. So begin to see on, on stage that type of thing, that quality of somebody who's just so consumed with emotion that they, you know, will kill themselves or will charge into battle or things like that. Um, I should have put a picture of him. Uh, Johann George um, Hamann uh, was another one, uh, poet and playwright, supporter of Sturmendrang. Um, he was very much a responder to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Now, Kant was late 18th century German Enlightenment philosopher. He actually wrote a book on what is the Enlightenment, and he was, he was very critical of it. And Kant had what was known as the uh, Copernican Revolution, which, uh, his version of the Copernican Revolution, the Kantian version of it, which Copernicus moves the sun to the center of the solar system, where it used to be the earth. Kant wants to move subjectivity to the center of philosophy instead of objectivity. So before Kant, you used to have people who would, um, you know, see objects in the world, right? And we would try and find what was true by looking out at the world and figuring out what was going on there. Um, what Kant would say is that um, the mind itself is structuring the world around us. So our mind has categories, and these categories are structural runs, like ones, like time and space. And our time and space filters, so to speak, um, they filter the, the stuff in the world. And so the experience of the world is, in fact, deeply subjective. And this is, this is the point where that, that type of thought gets introduced into philosophy. And as a, a playwright, um, Haman was very much interested in this. And he wrote a lot of philosophical texts, sort of a post-Kantian writer. Um, but this, this idea is also another one that's considered on the cusp of, is it enlightenment? Is it, is it post-enlightenment? But it does center the, the concerns about the individual and the subjective individual as front and center instead of uh, a scientific discourse in how this or that works. How, does the he how do the heavens work? How can we study mathematics to see the movement of the planets or stars? You know, that's, that's, a, very, um, that's a very enlightenment thing to do, but turning away from that and towards the subjective experience is what people like Kant wanted. Um, oh, here's a picture of him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Haman, in his response to Kant, um, 
turns towards uh, passion, towards emotion. Um, he thinks people have been far too concerned with rationality, and he wants to see the, the kind of emotional life of somebody as being front and center, as central to our understanding of the world. And therefore, the, the aesthetic experience, so the experience of, of art and whatnot, um, that becomes really centrally important. Uh, and he's not the first person to do this. There's a philosopher in England, uh, Baumgarten, who is also writing about aesthetics. And Kant himself is writing about aesthetics. He, he Kant sees aesthetics as uh, central to his philosophy. Kant is a systems builder, so he's interested in uh, how we know things. Um, he In the the ontology of the world, what what is in the world, and he sees, uh, he sees aesthetics as connecting those things together. Oh, can people hear me? Yes. It was just breaking up. Yeah, a little bit. Okay, how much was lost? I heard most of it. I don't know. Me, but. I'm having a hard time. Right now you're having a hard time, I heard too? most of it until, like, pretty much just, like, right now. Okay. Did it, did it clear back up? Yeah. Like, when you talk, it's, like, kind of hard to, like... Is It's hard to hear? Can, can people hear me right now? I can hear you. I think she got cut off, though. So. Oh. Okay. All right. Um, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't I stop sharing this thing? Um, and I think maybe I, I could just talk and you won't be able to see the slides. There's not a lot to see on the slides. Let's be real. Uh, and is this better? Does this seem a little more clear? Or we yeah, still having the same problem. Okay, so what I'm gonna do is give me give me one second. Um, I'm just going to say what's on the slides, and I'll post them, and you could you could look at them there. Um, so anyway, so uh, people begin to see aesthetics, that's kind of arts and and all that, as being a, a means of connecting uh, our subjective experiences to the world, right? And so so Kant is writing about this. Um, Kant is seeing the arts as affecting and developing also morals. And so not only is aesthetics connecting subjective experience and the objective world, it's also helping influence our, our ethical concerns, right? And so you can see there's, a, there's this big system here that includes all of these different independent schools of philosophy that are being joined together. And what's front and center here? the individual what's front and center here arts right um and so this is a a, a big step into uh, romanticism or you know what we might call counter the the counter enlightenment um so We have some other other thinkers at this time who are actively trying to break with the Enlightenment. So uh, Joseph de Maastri, um, he wrote in 1797, uh, Considerations on France. 
and he sees the French Revolution as a divine punishment for the Enlightenment. So here we see people not only kind of wrestling with with new types of thoughts, but um, this thinker is actually saying the French Revolution is the end of the Enlightenment. We shouldn't have done this. This was bad. Um, uh, and the revolution is kind of unleashing the forces of nature. And it, it's not just this kind of uh, theocratic view of the world. It's kind of like we thought we could understand nature. We thought we could box nature in and, and define it and, and systematize it. Um, well, here nature is busting out. It, it's coming out. It's unexplainable. It, it's now becoming, a, you know, a force of destruction in response to all of these Enlightenment thinkers. And so you could see, um, you could see there this idea of of the um, of nature as being something that is uh, not necessarily conscious per se, but something that is responsive to to mankind, right? Uh, and something that's unknowable too, right? So it's kind of responsive and and unknowable, and when you attempt to know it it kind of breaks out and, and destroys. Um, and so this idea of nature becomes very important or of the natural world. So, you know, if you're in a garden or something like that, if you could smell the flowers, um, you know, you might be, you might be uh, in a natural world and the effect of the natural world might be such that you can't understand it, right? It might inspire dreams. It might inspire um, uh, uh, romantic fantasies, things like that. Um, and some other um, other writers who took this up, took up this idea of, of the environment and how the environment affects the individual, um, were Goethe, who we talked about before, Goethe's most famous play is, is Faust, which we almost did. Um, you guys would have liked it more than Nathan the Wise. I'm sorry. I just, I thought we needed to do an Enlightenment play. Uh, uh, but Goethe and uh, Johann Gottfried Herder. And um, they were very much interested in the environment and how it affected people. They were very much interested in uh, Sturm und Drang. Um, and they worked at the Seiler Theater Company, which I want to say I think was in Berlin. And it's it, that's the theater company that in 1777 did the initial production of the actual play Sturm und Drang. Um, and uh, here what we see is um, these writers inspired by that play beginning to, to go out and create these, these great plays about, you know, the natural world. Now, in, in some cases, and you see this a lot with Goethe and his early writings, um, it it is uh, not necessarily always plays that can be staged. Again, a lot of closet dramas there, um, because you know he'd have these kind of amazingly long uh, plays with um, these really fantastical elements. Uh, for example, in, in Faust Part One, when Me Mephisto comes to Faust, Mephisto's the devil to tempt Faust. He comes as a poodle. And then the poodle gets really big and blows up and turns into Mephisto. Um, and it's really hard to imagine someone staging the giant poodle scene in, in Germany. Um, at this time, 
It's hard to imagine somebody staging the giant blowing up poodle scene at any point in theater ever, including now. So, you know, that's the type of things they were doing, right? These kind of somewhat crazy stuff. Uh, you, you could see that Buchner, as much as he is, Buchner who wrote Wojciech, um, as much as Buchner is not of his time, right? He's sort of writing things that really inspire the 20th century. You could see the in Buchner the, um, the the kind of damage that nature can do, right? When you give somebody only peas um, and you think you're going to do a, this detailed scientific discovery, what ends up, scientific research anyway, what ends up happening is these kind of disastrous consequences. You know, uh, the environment really is a factor in in Voidsec, a factor for Voidsec. And with um, Herder and Goethe, uh, a lot of the same thing is happening. It's not necessarily uh, psychological, I, I would say, in the way um, Buchner's work is, in the way Voidsec is, um, but it is about um, the individual in the environment. Um, another kind of romantic novel we can think about is does anybody know the original Frankenstein the the, the Mary Shelley one not so much the um the Jane yeah. you do okay you've read it so do you yeah okay so um how does that start do you remember how that starts oh gosh it's been I read mm-hmm. it in high school I don't really remember exactly how it started so it starts on a boat going into oh, the yeah. Arctic yeah, listen, yeah they're on mm-hmm. a boat um, and I forgot who was ta- who was talking. That I I thought it's, it was when I first read it. I thought it was Frankenstein. You know, mm-hmm. the stereotypical Frankenstein who was talking. But it's who is it that was talking? It's the captain of the boat, right? Whose name I I forget. I think I think it actually might also be named Victor. Um, but the the captain of the boat is talking about this great voyage into the unknown. He's going, you know, and it's and the um. The, you're dealing with an incredibly hostile and uh, kind of mysterious terrain. The Arctic is, is seen as this, this mysterious place. And what happens there is he, he meets Victor Frankenstein, who is um, chasing the monster into the Arctic. And so what you have is this uh, monstrosity of scientific enlightenment, the, the Frankenstein's monster, um, in and you know being chased into this this environment that is this hostile unforgiving unknowable and so you start to see um how the environment kind of reflects the uh the the extreme emotion and the extreme damage that comes out of people responding to you know, uh, scientific discovery and whatnot, right? This is the time when we become suspicious of scientific discovery, when we become suspicious of uh, trying to control nature. And so the opening of Frankenstein is has all of that of a piece. It's the environment kind of um, this, this bizarre, strange, romantic, distant, harsh environment reflecting the... Um, the kind of the actions of this unique individual, Victor Frankenstein, and his attempt to kind of um, destroy his creation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, you know that that is a, a novel very much written in the the romantic mold. Um, and another aspect that that kind of feeds into this is something called Weimar classicism. 
so this is this is a little different this is people like um people like herder uh and i think goethe as well kind of looked uh, away occasionally from from romanticism and um they looked towards like let's say classical rome for inspiration um in order to see uh, other kind of models of feeling and so with weimar classicism you have three kind of major tenets uh which is means literally translates to felt thought um which is kind of this feeling of aliveness that a work of art conveys you have also gestalt which is just the form the aesthetic form um and uh stuff which is a focus on content um what what is going on what it's about not distracted distracting attention from the form right so the the formal aspects of the art should dominate um and some of this kind of filters into the counter enlightenment some of it doesn't i think this idea of felt thought that that a work of art should feel alive was one of those things from weimar classicism that kind of affected uh affected romanticism another major tenant and we we've covered this a little bit romantic nationalism um we talked about this the state derives its legitimacy as an organic unit of a people usually kind of a linguistic group um the age speaks through the people so this is when you start to see uh, hegel the philosopher hegel um he's the uh uh thesis antithesis synthesis guy he he sees history as this kind of evolving thing that can be scientifically discussed um and for hegel the changes in history excuse me are generated from the people from kind of the, the lower low you know the the peop everyone right it's not just the royals it's not just the higher up but the people themselves kind of generate changes throughout history Uh, and revolution would be part of that and we start to see throughout the 19th century um a ton of revolution culminating really in 1848 where you see another yet another french revolution the french are super into revolting um you start to see i think a re- revolution in hungary and a, a collection of revolutions in eastern europe um and so that that becomes part of this kind of romantic nationalism this sort of a uh, uh, overthrowing by the people of the upper classes in an act of liberation um so places like prussia uh saw it's uh, prussia um saw this kind of spirit of the people as spiritual as as renewal as renewing their spirit um so the term for the essential nature of someone or something that essential body was a uh, volkstrom or folkhood and so a person or a group of people they they were known for their volkstrom this this the, the characteristic their essential characteristic and you can understand um a, a group of people by their by their essence and they have this kind of passionate essence that exists in them and is different for different groups of people. And so that's what we're getting getting in the this period and this is the type of commitments and interests that Kleist had when writing The Prince of Homburg and I think it's it's stuff that is 
yeah, very much relevant towards the Prince of Homburg um, or for the Prince of Homburg. So, so let's talk about this play. Um, and let's start kind of with the, the plot of the first part of it. Right. So what happens uh, up to the battle? Right, so there's a major battle about halfway through, the Battle of uh, Ferblin. And what happens up to then? So what happens in the first scene? How about that? Let's, let's start. First scene... Um, I would love to just watch it again, but I fear that the the whole computer is just going to wig out if we do. So in the first scene, we see the the, the Prince of Hamburg, um, and he's lying on a bench in a garden, and he's waiting to meet up with the cavalry, and he he's fallen asleep, and um, and the um. The prince is lying on a bench and he starts playing with laurel, a laurel wreath. Does anybody know what the laurel wreath symbolizes? What that usually represents? Is it like a symbol of power? Yeah, it's kind of like, um, yeah, like peace and authority or victory, really. And so he is, at this point, it, it, I think it seems more like victory. Um, he's really entranced, right? He's he's sleepwalking, and he is put together a laurel wreath. There's no laurel wreath in the area. Somehow he's gotten his hands on one. Um, oh, I was just going to say, doesn't it usually mean like someone won a battle or... or... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Won a battle. You could also like win a poetry contest. <laughs> you, you know, you get it. You get it put on. So it's like a great symbol for this sort of romantic hero, right? It's it's the warrior poet. Um, you know, uh, I, we don't see like the Prince of Homburg writing poetry, even though he is very poetic in the way he speaks. But it's it's a great symbol for this type of romantic attitude, where you have um, the the victor poet. The conquering poet. Um, we could think of Lord Byron. Does anybody know where Lord Byron died, or what Lord? Who, do, you guys, do you guys know who Lord Byron is? I'll start there. Um, well, Lord Byron was a, a poet, a very famous poet, and he died in Greece, fighting for Greek independence. And so he was, um, you know, one of these victor poets, right? He was going to go to Greece and battle for the, um, you know, fight hand-to-hand, -hand, fight in combat for the, um, for the, the liberation of, of Greece. And I think he got sick and died on the way. <laughs> I don't think he actually got to, to fight. But that's the sort of, that's the, the thing that's going on at this time. That's the spirit, is this kind of warrior, uh, uh, warrior poet. Um, and the Prince of, 
Yeah, exactly. So he was there in, it was in Italy where um, Shelley, uh, Mary Shelley, who was Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin at that time, she wasn't married yet, um, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who she would later marry, and Lord Byron were at a party and they had a kind of contest who could write the stereo story. And uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, later Mary Shelley, won. So, yeah, he, he, the romantic circle of poets um, and thinkers, for all their talk about kind of the essential nature of a people, it's pretty exclusive. <laughs> you know, they, they all sort of know each other. They're not really like hanging out with the peasants. Um, but yeah, so that is, that is Lord Byron. And Hamburg is, even though Hamburg isn't, um, let's say, as sexually adventurous or lacking restraint as Byron, Hamburg is sort of seen as the, the sort of warrior prince, right? His sensitivity, his kind of romantic notions aren't a distraction from his cry to battle. They're a, a contributor, right? Um, yeah, and so that that is who Humberg is, and so that's what happens. And then what what happens while he's playing with the laurel reef? Who comes in? Um, there's like a bunch of people who come in. I don't know like exactly who they were, but. Like a whole group. Yep. So that is that's Frederick Wilhelm the first. That was the great elector. He's the person, the elector of Brandenburg. He's he's the big man. He comes in with his wife and daughter, and also a, a large entourage of military people, and they take. He does. He takes the reef from. Um, in kind of a teasing way from the sleepwalking Prince of Hamburg. And he gives it to his daughter. Um, he wraps a chain around it, sort of, a, you know, one of his, his chains uh, from, you know, his kind of uh, 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 military display, his military outfit, uh, wraps it around and gives it to his daughter. And the Prince of Hamburg goes over to the daughter to retrieve the, the laurel wreath. And in so doing, they, they, she kind of runs away um, but she leaves behind a glove. And so that glove becomes part of the conflict later on. Right? And so I think we are at 11 o'clock now. Um, and so we'll pick this up. Um, when will we pick this up? Pick this up on Wednesday? Sound good? Okay, great. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.